0: Head to myeq.com and use code PARENTING for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and much more. That's myeq.com and use code PARENTING at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline. is a place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your village founder and your host, Erin Royer. Hello, everyone. So today I am answering a great question about should we allow kids to say no to us parents? Then I'm gonna get into talking about ADHD that I didn't get into in the last episode. And what I'm gonna do is cover a different diagnosis over the coming weeks because I know I didn't get to talk about SPD. I didn't talk anything about... Um, ASD, autistic spectrum disorders, either. So I want to get into those and also provide a little bit of a different viewpoint of some of these different ways of thinking and behaving. Um, also, when I talk about that. So I hope everyone is doing well. Our Southern Hemisphere friends, I hope you're enjoying the last days of summer for you. And for Northern Hemisphere, I am excited for spring and I hope everyone else is as well. This morning it was dark and it was rainy and it was so hard to get up. I have to wake my oldest up to get to swim practice at 7 a.m. That means he has to be up at 6.15, I have to be up at 6. And since we just went through the time change, it has been really difficult this week. And he just didn't want to budge that first day. He wouldn't even wake up. And I didn't try super hard, but I just thought with the hour earlier and the rain and the dark that I would give him one more day. So I let him skip on Monday. But he has been able to do it the last couple days, but we are really, he's really struggling with this new time schedule. As am I, because it's so dark in the morning. So I've run into a little bit of a snafu with the YouTube video, so I apologize for a long hiatus on those. I have some ready to go, but... Uh, My marketing coordinator, Ashley, is editing them for me now, and she's on a different version of the editing software, and I can't seem to open them and make some final edits on them on my computer. So I'm doing some troubleshooting, trying to upgrade. It's a whole thing, so I won't go into the technical details because it's unfortunately not just as simple as upgrading. But anyway, let's get to the question and then talking about some differential diagnosis for children um, for some of these diagnoses that are more common in childhood. Okay, so first a question from Lauren, and she says, Hello, this question is for your podcast. We have two toddlers, ages two and four, and my husband often tells them, you're not allowed to say no to us. My four-year-old repeated this the other day. We're not allowed to say no, right, Mom? And I just couldn't bring myself to validate that. I want them to be able to say no to authority when they need to. How do you teach toddlers the nuances of only using no carefully and respectfully? Okay, so this is a great question. Parenting has changed a lot through the ages. I covered this in a previous episode, boy, a really long time ago. I wish I knew what the episode number was, but there's so many, I just have no idea how to go back through and find this. But I find it fascinating, actually, the way society evolves over time in all areas, and parenting is no exception. So we all carry some aspects of different parenting styles and paradigms from our own upbringings, from our own cultural backgrounds, whatever that is, and just our own experiences with our own parents. So we develop some of our own styles and things that we wanna do differently. I talk about the four parenting styles in the class, Intro to Discipline. I talk about the traits of each type of parenting style and the common outcomes of each. Now, parents often fall, you know, predominantly into one style. We all fall predominantly into one style, but we'll kind of tip over into one style or another from time to time. It's very common. Um, So it used to be in the 1950s, and prior to that, the parents were highly authoritarian. This is... The idea that children are to be seen and not heard, that they do as I say, they do not question me. Um, and some of that parenting did carry over to my mom's style. That was her parents' parenting style. Um, now, an authoritarian style is different from abuse. Abuse is not authoritarian style. It's just, well, not a good thing to do, obviously. It's abuse. Authoritarian style, it's definitely not a warm parenting style, but that. But it doesn't mean that... Um, but the actual physical abuse or emotional or verbal abuse is not a part of the authoritarian style. It just tends to be very strict. Do as I say, this is what I do, these are the boundaries, don't push me, lots of consequences if you don't, that type of thing. Um, You know, Certain things are earned, it's just extremely strict and very low in warmth. Um, Then there's the permissive style, and then also the authoritative or democratic style, which is a mix of the best from both the authoritarian style and the permissive styles. Rules. There are rules and there are expectations, but they're done with warmth, they're done with respect, there's room for discussion, there can be room for negotiation in certain instances, within certain boundaries. I talked a lot about that actually just a few episodes ago, about how to work in negotiation as a part of parenting and not make it so that they're pushing every single moment of every single day for everything that they want, but how can you work that in in a respectful way? So before I talk about this shift, and how we can incorporate both of these, the good solid boundaries and rules with allowing for some negotiations and actually an even more recent shift that I'm seeing societally and culturally in the Western world at least. I feel it's important. I want to comment about some older generations viewpoint um, because you can see this on social media. I see this sometimes on some of these parenting websites and things with older um, older generations really coming down on the way we parent today. And honestly, I mean, obviously it gets me a little miffed um, when I see comments like that, that, you know, things like kids these days are so spoiled. No wonder the youth of today can't do X, Y, and Z, or why the youth of today are so A, B, and C. And, you know, they tend to think that our children are spoiled, that they're not very capable, that they're, um, you know, not very tough, all of these types of things. And, you know, they often say all they need is a good swift you know, crack on the butt or something like that. And that just, oh, um. because as someone who studied cultural patterns, beliefs over time, the changes, the research of different parenting styles and practices, including the outcomes of different parenting practice, as well as things like corporal punishment, which is spanking and other forms of physical punishments. And I have seen enough evidence to know and to be convinced that this is no way re- to relate to any human being, let alone a child especially when your values are teaching mutual respect to support self-esteem, to assist them in building a foundation for reaching their potential for building an internal sense of motivation. You know, a crack on the butt might be a good motivation not to do something. This type of interaction is certainly not going to build an internal sense of motivation and make a child highly goal-driven or a goal-oriented type of child. So, but the authoritarian part of my upbringing actually was positive, um, parts of it. <laughs> um, one of the one of the things my mom was really good at was setting those solid boundaries and expectations. And I do appreciate that she did that. It gave me a solid foundation in many ways of, you know, knowing exactly what was expected and knowing that there's just certain parts of life that you just do and you don't whine and complain about it. And I think it made me a tougher person because of that. Um, I do definitely fold this into my own parenting. Um, so that part of just when there's a time to put down a boundary comes very easily to me, but luckily so does the warmth and the kindness and the love and the supportive part of the of the more democratic style and permissive style comes also comes very naturally to me. So staying in this place of setting rules but with kindness and warmth and love, um, but being, you know, just setting the boundary strong when I need to, is a really comfortable place and platform from which to parent for me. Um, you know, do we sometimes fall more into permissive or also into the authoritarian style at times in certain situations? Of course, you know, of course I do. And of course, I think we all do. You know, I'm too soft sometimes and I'm too hard other times. And no one's ever going to be perfectly in the middle at every moment and handle every situation perfectly at every instance. But, you know, we... We have our own personal experiences, we have our personalities, we have our bad days, we have other things that will color the way that we handle different situations, but we come back to center. We learn from these experiences, and as we learn more about ourselves, about our children, uh, and the way that they respond to us as well, then we adjust and we learn to do things a little bit differently the next time. It's really um, a, a practice and an opportunity to learn and do better with them. These are human relationships, they're never going to be perfect, but you know we do our best and that's all we can do. So one more piece of information, I think that helps us see the big picture. Before I get into the question of, is it okay to set a precedent for our kids to say no to us? So what I've seen lately is a shift, and I think it's a really good one for the most part, But it can get tricky. And this is that parents are really wanting to not squash their children's individuality, their child's will, their gifts that make them who they are, their way of expressing themselves in creative or whatever ways that that is. But they also don't want to fall into that category of being too permissive, where they're a doormat and the kids are running the show. So they come to me with questions about. How can I do this? How can I set boundaries and rules without squashing my children's independence and that persistent nature that is really a positive thing in so many ways, but not when it comes up to butt up against me at bedtimes, (laughs) that type of thing. So I love this, that parents, we're all really thinking about that, is how do I give my child what they need? to become their own best selves, but also to help them grow up to learn to be respectful and kind and, and um, thoughtful of other people, and not just thinking about themselves and what they want and running people over. So how do I do both of those things? Obviously, these are both very possible things to do. They sometimes seem like they run up against each other, but I don't think that they have to. And I think no matter how much we as parents know about life or have a ton of important knowledge to teach our children and help guide them, we will never know them as deeply as they know themselves. So doing this while allowing them to be the authority on themselves, so setting up the boundaries, setting up the help, setting up the support, Um, guiding them through life, making sure they do the things they need to do, learn the things they need to learn, um, learn what's part of life and what's important skills to have. You know, you got to go to school, you got to work hard, you got to get the best grades that you can. You may not do great in every class, um, you know, but you do your best at every class that you have, you know, and how they do the chores at home and how they learn to balance a checkbook and all these things they need to learn growing up, how to... uh, you know, share their needs effectively. These are all the things we're going to teach them doing all of that, but also allowing them to be their own individual selves and allowing them to be the authority on and of themselves is the new challenge for us parents in this day and age. I feel like parenting in a way maybe just gets harder because we're really taking a lot more into account, I think, than parents of the past really needed to. Um, and maybe some things are easier and some things are harder. I don't know. But I feel like there's we're just taking a lot more nuances into account nowadays than, you know, my parents were just like, do your chores and be quiet. <laughs> so taking all of this into consideration, the techniques and authoritarian, permissive and authoritative styles, balancing that out with the mutual respect and allowing children to be the authority on themselves. How does this play out with allowing a place for kids to say no to adults? Now Lauren hit this right on the head when she said, we need to teach kids to say no respectfully. So even though kids are much younger than us, this is still a mutual relationship. And someday they will be adults. And over the years we will be allowing more and more negotiations, compromises, discussions, communication around a lot of things. In toddlerhood there isn't nearly so much room for compromise and negotiations as there are when they age. So you can set some rules around areas that just aren't up for any negotiation, in toddlerhood especially, bedtimes, what's served for dinner, how long you play at the park, when you know you have an appointment or some pressing reason to leave by a certain time. Um, but when we wanna set up an environment where our kids can say no or can question certain things like which toys they don't wanna share during a play date, if they have a few special toys, they can leave those put away safely when a friend comes over there definitely needs to be room for sharing feelings and even saying no to things they're not comfortable with. Now this becomes extremely important in not just self-esteem, um, but also in body autonomy, in setting boundaries around what does and does not feel comfortable. If something feels uncomfortable to them, even if to us it feels silly, they deserve the opportunity to be able to speak up about it without reproach. Now I'm gonna go into more details around these conversations, exact conversations you can have around these, teaching a respectful no, as well as talking about the types and signs of ADD and a different way of looking at some of these differential diagnoses in childhood, right after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. By Heart is an infant nutrition company whose mission is simple, Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com/podcast with the code Parenting for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. To me, there is nothing more important than my family's health and well-being. We all know the quality of the air in our home is important. but did you know indoor air quality can be up to a hundred times dirtier than outdoor air? I've got to tell you about puro air. In 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, dander, and gases from the room. Puro Air uses a stronger filter called a HEPA-14 that filters pollutants at a microscopic level and is backed by scientists from Harvard and MIT. In laboratory studies, users saw noticeably cleaner air in just 30 minutes. When it comes to babies and children, there's nothing worse than dealing with a cranky baby or child who can't sleep because of congestion. Air purifiers can help reduce congestion and improve immune system function to fight those winter colds and flus. puroair.com Puro Air is the only air filter that uses a HEPA 14 filter. That's getpuroair.com. Now that we're back after the break, I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts of this question of helping toddlers especially but teaching kids that it's okay to say no and how to do so respectfully. Now, toddlers are a little bit different, um, so we're going to talk about that for a minute. Then we're going to get into some differential diagnoses that are common in childhood, well, not some, um, ADHD in particular in this case, and talking about um, some of my thoughts about these or this one in particular, but um, some positives of these when these are things that you are dealing with in your family and some ways to um, put that into a positive light because there are um, some really great positives to it. Okay, so um, I want to talk about an incident I remember many, many years ago. These kids are actually completely grown up now and out of high school and um, into college or trade schools Um, and this was we went to dinner with my ex's family um, and At the time, the sister and the brother-in-law came in to the family dinner at a restaurant with their two kids. The daughter was very young. She was one and a half, maybe two. Um, The dad wanted his daughter to say hello to his family. And she was clearly not in the mood. She had her face buried in her mom's shoulder. She had actually, very likely, I think, just woken up from a nap. And so you know how toddlers can be when they've just been woken up from a nap. Um, And then brought into a room, well, into a restaurant, with a bunch of, they're not strangers, but you know we saw them maybe once a month and you've got five adults sort of staring at you because you walked in after we'd already been there talking because we're greeting the other adults. And she understandably felt, um, I think, very insecure in that moment, the the little girl. And um, the mom snapped at the dad. And I'm sure there was some more behind the attitude of the response that was deeper than the question in and of itself. Even so, she really wasn't wrong in her response. Um, And she said, what do you want me to do, force her? Now, I understood where the dad was coming from. And a lot of parents worry about this, about their children learning and expressing proper manners. They really want their children to come into a room of adults, a room of their family, and just be polite and say hello, Um, allow grandma and grandpa to give them a hug, or aunts and uncles to give them hugs and kisses and say hello. Um, They don't want people to think that they're raising rude children. Um, This makes sense. Certainly with grandpa there, you know, dad felt particularly pressured to have his young daughter engage with grandpa with some proper manners. Now this is an area where I get questions and parents struggling with, do I force this or not? With greetings, with hugs, when my toddler does not want to, my preschooler even. Lots of parents have struggles with this. You know, toddlers can be moody. We know this. They can be fickle. They can be illogical. They don't Obviously, their brains don't work on an adult level. They just don't get it or see it. And so getting into the mind of the toddler in instances like these, like my sister-in-law was probably able to do to some degree. You know, the girl was tired. Her daughter was tired. Like I said, she'd likely been woken up to come over to the restaurant. Um, She's brought into a room full of adults that, like I said, we get together once a month. And so... um, you know, we're just unfamiliar to her for the most part. And you know, a month for a toddler is a long time. We are basically strangers every time she sees us again and she would always warm up over time. But you come in and all these adults' faces are staring at you, five of us already seated, ready to order. She was uncomfortable. She was seeking the security of her mom in those first moments of being there and waking up from her nap. Um, allowing a toddler to feel overwhelmed, and offer security without forcing greetings, and especially hugs and kisses, is not going to send any message at that age about how ignoring people is rude. Um, It sends a message that I'm here to help you feel comfortable and safe first, and we'll work on manners later. Soon enough, the moodiness and such things of toddlerhood will pass, and then it will be time to really work on and expect manners. Um, You know, you can start working on this at young ages, you can ask them and invite them, but not force them same thing in preschool you know once kids are five six and seven absolutely you know when we get to this outing you know i expect you to say hello and greet each of your relatives however it doesn't mean forcing hugs you know you can expect greetings and hugs are nice and let them know they like to hug you it would be nice if you'd like to give them a hug but if you're not feeling comfortable we understand kisses are nice but again, only if the child wants to. It's never a priority to make a child hug or kiss anyone, relative or otherwise, to show politeness. Children of any age need to know that they are the boss of their body in any and all situations and with anyone, period. Period. That means with us parents too. If we wanna hug them and they aren't in the mood, they get to say no. So this is an important area where no matter the age, they do get to say no about any kind of physical affection that they do not feel like engaging in. I've shared this story before, but I remember my daughter, um, one time we were sitting on the couch and I put my hand on her leg and she would pick it up and move it off. She did not want my hand on her leg for whatever reason. She was just trying to assert her independence and her authority over her body. And I had to respect that. And, um, you know, I was a little hurt that she didn't want to be affectionate at that moment or didn't want to accept my affection. But I knew that this was her body and this was her place to say no. It was very short-lived. I think that stage lasted a couple of weeks. And then she was done. And I told her about it a few weeks ago, a month ago, something like that. And she laughed. And she was like, what? I did what? She's very affectionate. All my kids are very affectionate. And um, now we'll never turn down a hug or anything. Um, Well, I shouldn't say never. Um, My oldest might when he's really upset with me. But other than that. You know, they don't turn down physical affection, but when they do, we need to respect that. Okay, so when else might they be able to say no? What if they have something they built, they put a lot of time and energy into it? They built a big zoo with trains, building blocks, and animals, and you want them to put it away before dinner. They wanna keep it up and play with it more later. Now remember, toddlers aren't going to be eloquent in their speech. They're not going to share how hard they worked and can I please keep it up tonight so I can play more later. They're likely just going to get upset about it and say no when you ask them to clean it up because they're gonna go right to being upset. They're not gonna have a lot of language to be able to share with you. And then you can say, I can see you're very upset at the idea of needing to take your creation apart. Would you like to keep it up for a while longer? Now, this is where we step in. We allow their feelings, allow them to share, and teach them that advocating for what is important to them is a positive thing. This is an important thing for them to learn how to do this. And these are just kind of these first steps. We can coach how to share feelings after a resolution is reached, so once you got you agree to okay, let's keep it up. Uh, you can certainly play with it after dinner, even you know into tomorrow. You know, set a limit, whatever it's gonna be for you. We would let our kids keep things up for several days, actually, if that's what they wanted, and you know everything else was cleaned up around it, like all the extra blocks got put away, um, that kind of thing. But if they had an area and they kept it out in the playroom for two or three days, we were fine with it. After day four or five, we're like, okay, this has been here a while. You haven't played with it in a couple days. It's time to clean it up and put it away. This is when you can coach them about how to talk to you about keeping something up later. Now, if they're a really young toddler or still in toddlerhood at all, actually, they're not going to be great at it, but you're just going to start giving them the building blocks for that, coaching them through how to tell you, I worked really hard, can I keep it up, please? Or even just saying, I'd really like to play with it later, can I keep it up, please? You know, coach them at the level of language skill that they have, what they might be able, what they would be able to express on their own. Um, or even just one level above to get them working towards that next level. But just now at two, two and a half, even three, they're not going to be great. They'll get better with continued coaching, and as they learn that you're very likely to listen to what they have to say. Sometimes they get very upset because they just assume we're not going to listen to them, and we're not going to hear what they have to say. So they are already thinking like they're going to have to take this thing down and they're upset about it. When the precedent in the home has been when you have something to share and advocate for yourself and I am here to listen to you, they're not going to get nearly as upset or they're going to get to a point where they're no longer going to get upset and they're just going to share their feelings and what they would like to have happen. And especially by the fourth year, if this is something that you have been practicing in your home for a while, By the fourth year, they're gonna get really good at it. You will be very impressed with how eloquently they can share these things with you. If you're new to this and your child is already four, you wanna give them some time, they will improve quickly because now at four, they've already got some good language skills. They've probably got some good social emotional skills built in underneath there, and so now that they know and they start learning this practice, they'll get good at it very, very quickly. Okay, so we're gonna set boundaries around things that are non-negotiable. I understand that you don't feel tired and would like to stay up, but bedtime is just not negotiable. It's time to get ready now, please. Or I understand you'd like pizza for dinner again tonight, but mom and dad choose what's for dinner. And tonight we're having chicken burritos and salad. Or I can see you're having a lot of fun with your friend, but we need to go in five minutes. It's time to get home and start dinner. You wanna just set those non-negotiable things where we're just not negotiating. The child doesn't get to say everything, every move the family makes. And they don't get to be in charge of their own bedtimes and they don't get to be in charge of what they eat for dinner, those types of things. Um, so you're gonna set boundaries around that. And those are the non-negotiable things, but there's other things that are negotiable. So. And then you're going to allow them to share those feelings like I already shared in the previous incidences, allowing them to share those feelings, allowing them to have some needs that they're sharing with you where, they, where there can be some compromise in there. And that are the areas where they are able to you know, say no because toddlers, like I said, are gonna come right out and probably just say no. They're not gonna eloquently tell you what they want. Okay, so we went a little longer with this but um, I really wanted to make sure I answered that um, as deeply as possible. Um, I want to get into the ADHD, give some good foundational information on this topic. But I also want to go for back to a second. Um, and talk about these types of diagnoses that you're going to see in childhood, or that you may see in childhood, the ADHDs, ASD, autistic spectrum disorders, even some learning disabilities, whatever it is that your child may struggle with if you do have a diagnosis on something. Um, and I'm gonna talk about this more at the end, especially when it comes to ADHD, but there are some positives to this. And you know, as a mother of a son, with ADHD, and also as someone with ADHD myself, you know, I see these things as different ways of thinking, different ways of behaving. And they're not necessarily wrong or bad. They just don't fit in with societal structure, and especially with schooling, with the educational system that we have in place right now. There just isn't a lot of room for that, um, for the differences, which is why they end up with IEPs and specialized training and specialized support and those types of things, and that's just where we are right now. But when we get to the end, I'm going to talk about the positives of ADHD. There are positives to the other diagnoses or different ways of reacting to the world and dealing with the world and experiencing the world um, that I will talk about in later episodes as well. So... You'll hear it called ADD or ADHD. Now I prefer ADD, it's Attention Deficit Disorder, but that is now outdated apparently. It's called ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. The reason I don't like the H in there is that not everybody has the hyperactive part of it. So I like ADD with the different types, but they're now calling ADHD. So that is the technical term, the medical term for it. But anyway, it is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that is more frequently displayed and more severe than is typically observed at a comparable level of development. That's a kind of a mouthful. This is out of the diagnostic and statistical manual for the text revision. It's, it's one, I have one revision back from the current revision. And, and so this sounds a bit amorphous, and it is. But it does get broken down more clearly for the diagnostic purposes. But what this basically means is that when a child has either the inattention or hyperactivity impulsivity to a degree that is quite a bit different from what you will typically see in their peers of their same development. So kids who have grown up in the same socioeconomic, um, you know, family, social structures, um, been in school about the same amount of time, that kind of thing, and they're out of they're out of sync with their peers is when um, there's this is typically a diagnosis. Okay. But I'm gonna break it all down for you. The symptoms that cause the impairments must be present before the age of seven. This doesn't mean they need to get diagnosed before the age of seven because many children are diagnosed after the symptoms have been present for many years, um, particularly in the case of those with the inattentive type. Inattentive type can go really um, unnoticed for a lot, especially in girls. And inattentive is more common in girls than boys, but because girls will just sit quietly and they'll just pretend like they know what they're doing and they will um, just try to do their schoolwork the best they can and they either sort of limp by or they really struggle, but they a lot of times might get tested for a learning disability um, and it just kind of can get missed. But And some people don't even get tested into adulthood, but the signs and symptoms have been there since they were a young child. They just never got diagnosed. So here are the types. There's three types. Predominantly hyperactive, impulsive. Predominantly inattentive, or combined. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's difficult to diagnose before the age of four due to the nature of the behaviors, the lack of development before the age of five. So under age four or five, all kids are impulsive. All kids are jumping off the walls, or most kids um, are jumping off the walls. They do not yet possess the brain development and the skills for thoughtful consideration before responding, so they tend to be impulsive. When things don't go their way or when they want something, they just that's just how they are. So, we don't usually like to get a diagnosis until after the age of five. So, I'm going to read through the criteria for the DSM IV text revision. I'm going to talk more about if you have a suspicion, um, where to go to get a diagnosis, what the treatments are. And then I'm going to talk about the positives of these diagnoses or these ways of interacting with the world or thinking um, differently, thinking and behaving differently. There's a lot of of great positives to it. And there's a lot of amazing people out there who have accomplished amazing things, who have all kinds of, you know, who've been diagnosed with ADHD or ASD or SPD. So um, I want to talk about that also right after a word from our sponsors. Now that we're back after the break, I'm going to get into the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and the different types. I'm gonna break these down by types. Okay, so these are for the inattentive type. You need six or more of these symptoms to be diagnosed with inattentive type. And they have to be persistent for at least six months to a degree that is maladaptive and inconsistent with their developmental level. So this is the list, six or more. They often fail to give close attention to details or make careless mistakes in schoolwork, work or other activities. They often have difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. They often do not seem to listen when spoken to directly. They often do not follow through on instructions and fail to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties in the home or at school that are not due to the failure to understand the instructions. If they don't finish it because they didn't understand, that's different than if they just don't finish it because they're losing focus. They often have difficulty organizing tasks and activities. They often avoid or dislike or are reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort, such as schoolwork or homework. They often lose things necessary for tasks or activities. They lose toys, they lose their assignments, they lose their pencils, their books, etc. They are often easily distracted by extraneous stimuli. They are often forgetful in daily activities, so you need six or more of those. Okay, then this is the hyperactive impulsive signs. You need six or more of these. Has to have persisted, same as the inattention, persisted for at least six months to a degree that is maladaptive or inconsistent with their developmental level. Hyperactivity is fidgets, with hands or feet or squirms in their seat. They often leave the seat in the classroom or in other situations in which remaining seated is expected. So as you can see here, four-year-olds are not gonna be good at remaining seated. (laughs) We're expected, they're just not. In preschool, and some preschools do try to require this, It's just not something that some four-year-olds are going to be able to do no matter what. So this is why, um, as you can see here, or even sustain attention on activities or work of any kind, four-year-olds are just not ready for that. So this is why we wanna wait till a little bit later. Often they run about or climb excessively in situations in which it is inappropriate So again, we wanna think about age appropriateness. Four-year-olds need to move, need to climb. Even five, six, and seven, they really need to be moving and climbing more than we're allowing them. But even so, um, so that's why even waiting till five or six for a diagnosis sometimes, I just think is better. That's why I kinda waited till my son was about seven because I just kept thinking, let's just see if he calms down. Some kids just aren't good at sitting still and, and they just grow out of that. They often have difficulty playing or engaging in leisure activities quietly. They're often on the go or often act as if they are driven by a motor. They are just non-stop. Again, you look at a a lot of four-year-olds, they're pretty much driven non-stop. So that just has to kind of calm down. Once they start walking and moving, um, toddlers and babies and um, uh, preschoolers are just, they're on the go constantly. So that will calm down by about the age of five to six. And so then you can see if that's a continuing thing or not. They often talk excessively. Okay, oh, look at that. <laughs> My son with ADHD, I, he, not only does he talk excessively, he repeats things over. Like he'll tell you something and then he'll tell you the same thing like three or four times. Um, it's it's uh, interesting. Okay, impulsivity. He doesn't have hyperactive type though, but that is one of the things he does have in that. Um, Impulsivity, they often, so you need six of of these from either of these categories. So in hyperactivity, there's six, and then in impulsivity, there's only three here. So you only need six total of these nine traits. Um, Often blurt out answers before questions have been completed. They have difficulty waiting their turn. Again, you'll see a three or four-year-old, they're not great at turn-taking. So you got to wait till they're beyond that and they uh, mature enough where they should be better at it. If they're still not good at turn-taking when they're five or six, that may be an indication of ADHD hyperactive inattentive, impulsive type, sorry. They often interrupt or intrude on others. They butt into conversation or games. So as I mentioned earlier, some of the symptoms that cause the impairment have to be present before the age of seven years old, Some impairment from the symptoms is present in two or more settings, school and at home, or school, sports, and at home. needs to be in two different places because if there's only an issue in one place, then it's something about the environment. It has to be pervasive. So if they can sit at home and do their homework or sit and read for 20, 30, 40 minutes, no problem. But at school, they're distracted. It's something about the environment that is distracting. It's likely not ADHD diagnosis. So you want it needs to be per- pervasive both at home and at school. If they are struggle to pay attention at school, if they struggle to get through um, what you're asking them to do at home, if they're not listening to their coach and they're not, you know, they're losing focus, that's in three different um, environments, then you can see that it's happening in more than one place or more than one area. There also must be clear evidence of a clinically significant impairment in social, academic, or occupational functioning. So if it's really affecting them at school, if they just cannot sit and focus, if they cannot sit and read, they can't, they're can't. they not getting through the work at school, um, if they're speaking out of turn and they're being impulsive with their friends and at school or their peers at school, and so kids are kind of um, not interested in playing with them, it's affecting them in a lot of ways, then... Um, That is definitely, you know, that needs to be part of the diagnosis also. Now, there is also the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder not otherwise specified. They always have this bucket in this book um, for not otherwise specified. So here are the criteria for that. Individuals whose symptoms and impairments meet the criteria for either type, but whose age of onset is seven years or later. Individuals with clinically significant impairments who present with inattention and whose symptoms patterns do not meet the full criteria for the disorder, but have a behavioral pattern marked by sluggishness, daydreaming, and hypoactivity. So those are the criteria. And if you are seeing that, if they're struggling in school, if you're seeing this kind of behaviors at home and you feel like this is something that you want to get checked, the next thing to do is to consider getting an assessment. Now there, there isn't a particular test on the child to do this. It's actually a series of questionnaires that they will give to people who are close to the child, such as the teacher, the parent, caregiver, or coach, what have you. If you have suspicion that this is what is happening, you wanna you start with your pediatrician to get a referral for testing. You can also start with your school. I have found the schools to be a little bit more difficult. Um, So for me, I just feel like starting with my pediatrician, they're a good advocate for your child, but if you have a great school and a great teacher and your teacher is saying, I really think your child needs to be tested, great, go ahead and start with the school, that's fine. When we did our testing, Myself and the teacher filled in the diagnostic form about his behavior in addition to some observation by the psychologist and it helps to get input from those who work with the child most to see what symptoms are representing and how they are representing in different environments. It shows areas of overlaps, where we all see the same responses and behaviors, and then the behaviors where maybe only one or two people are seeing it, because human observation is obviously flawed. So as a mom, I could think my child is amazing and perfect. Now I don't, obviously, but You know, some parents may just think it's fine that they're a little bit crazy. They just think my child is energetic and it's awesome and it's not a problem. And so they're not going to um, maybe fill out the observation the same way that someone else who's like, listen, this is just not what we would normally see and he's really struggling. Or it could be that, you know, maybe as the parent, I just don't have the skills to deal with his behavior. His behavior is more normal, but I haven't done a good job of teaching him certain skills. And so he's kind of rambunctious and he doesn't have rules and boundaries set up at home. And so he's going to just kind of run over me as a mom. And I just feel like he has these symptoms of hyperactivity um, and impulsivity because I haven't given him the tools to um, behave in a different way. Now, if another person corroborates, and especially if all three people corroborate, it's a stronger diagnosis in that particular behavior or area or symptom. And um, and I just actually, we got very different answers from two different teachers. and I'm going to be really honest about this here because um, we finally went to have the, this done in first grade. The first grade teacher um, filled in the paperwork. I did not fill in the paperwork. I don't remember why I didn't do it at that point. I think I just wanted to give him a little more time. I don't know. But I didn't fill it in in first grade. Or I did it, but I don't think I turned it into the right place. I don't remember what happened. Anyway, when it came to second grade, I heard the same thing again from the teachers that I'd been hearing um, for the last three years. So we did, go the, we did go through the assessment again. The teacher filled it out. I filled it out and um and see where we matched now the first grade teacher when you looked at the answers she did not match mine or the second grade teachers in some areas um you actually would have thought that he was headed for a life of crime like she just I hate to say this but I really just don't think she liked him very much I think he was difficult I think he made her job difficult um and so she just had a certain viewpoint of him, a certain perspective of him, that was different than what his second grade teacher and I saw myself. Um, and the second grade teacher and myself matched almost exactly. And they also, also matched the psychologist much more closely on the observations that he had. So whatever reason the teacher really struggled with him in first grade, it just colored how she perceived him. So. I just feel like that's important to mention. Um you know, his second grade teacher, she loved him. Like she saw all the amazing things of him, which it which he is. Like he's very caring, very loving, very warm. Um he does he does accents. This kid does accents. He picks up accents, and he's very entertaining, and, and he's just, but I know for some people, like, he's a little much. <laughs> he can be a little too much. And so that's gonna color the way people may fill in the assessment. So you just wanna keep that in mind. Um, and so that's why you wanna have at least three prongs to that, because you can see where things match up and where they don't. It just makes it more accurate that way. Okay, so treatments. For ADHD, can include obviously an IEP, an individualized education plan for school that gives them extra support. Things like more time to take tests, they may have fewer questions on tests or fewer math problems on homework. Um, they may get to take tests in a different room or a quiet area to do work so they aren't distracted or compelled to engage with their classmates. Putting up some sort of a board. They just have these. They have these boards that will go up around the desk. So when they're doing quiet work, um, a child who's easily distracted may have that board up around in front and on the two sides of them so that they're not leaning over to their neighbor and you know, trying to engage in conversation. Those types of things can help. Um, And then, you know, the teacher may just have, it may be in the IEP that the teacher may need to redirect the child every so often back to their work and keep them on task. And that is definitely something that my son needs is redirection back to his work that he needs to be doing. Um, Behavioral therapy, counseling and education services, and also um, medication is an option. These are usually stimulants and they are the most common. They boost the balance levels of brain chemicals. Called neurotransmitters. These medications can help improve the signs and symptoms of ADHD. Um, they're effective for short periods, meaning they usually wear off at a certain time in the day. And I remember doing treatment with a, a middle school child who had ADHD and was on the medications, and he would, they would wear out sometime in the early afternoon. And it was very difficult because they didn't want to give them to him again because, you know, um, because then he would be too stimulated in the evening and at bedtime, but at the same time, it made homework time extremely difficult. So those parents really struggled with that about, you know, how to kind of balance that. And do they give it to them later in the morning to kind of carry it through homework time? Um, It can be a little bit difficult. Okay, let's talk about some positives, in particular of ADHD in this case. So not Every person with ADHD is going to have the same personality traits, but there are some personal strengths that can make having this an advantage, not a drawback. So Some of these examples of positive traits include, obviously, if they're hyperactive type, they can be very energetic. Um, Some with ADHD will have seemingly endless amounts of energy that they're able to channel towards success. And I remember the first time, or not the first time, but I'd watched, I don't remember what the show's called now, but his name's Ty Pennington. And I don't know, it was some sort of home improvement show. Um, it was where they'd go and like redo an entire house or they'd like knock down someone's house and, and build it from scratch. I saw that guy and I was like, Oh my gosh, he has ADHD, but he's super energetic and he's got this big personality and he's the host of this show. Obviously very successful, um, super energetic. People probably love him. He's bubbly and he's warm and he's just, he's full of life. Um, so being spontaneous. So, They may be more open and willing to try new things. They may break free from the status quo. This does not go well in the school environment for the most part, breaking free from the status quo. That's tough. But in the world, once they are out and they are doing their own thing and living their lives, it can be amazing. Like humanity needs people who can invent and dream and create. So people with ADHD are just on course for doing this. They can be creative and inventive, goes right along with that, right, for breaking free from the status quo. They can be hyper-focused, believe it or not. Some people with ADHD can become hyper-focused, not according to research, um, and it makes them intensely focused on a task that they may not even notice the world around them. When given an assignment, A person with ADHD may work at it until its completion without breaking concentration. Now, I know this sounds like it is the complete opposite. However, I have this, and so does my son. If it is something that I am really engaged in and really excited about, same with him, we can focus and things can Bombs can go off and I wouldn't even notice. And he's the same way. If he's super and he has a huge attention to detail, if it's something that he really is interested in. And he will spend a lot of time on a project and make it really amazing. Okay, so let's talk about, I'm just going to talk about some famous people with ADHD. Simone Biles, hopefully you all know who she is, but she's an amazing gymnast. I don't remember how many medals she won in the Olympics, but she is incredible. So it's that hyper-focus, something she loves, hyper-focused, and the energy comes into that too. Michael Phelps, who I also knew about, obviously, you know, has blown all the records out of the water in swimming in just about every single event. I don't think he's a breaststroker, but butterfly, I am, freestyle, amazing. Um, Justin Timberlake, Adam Levine, just to name a few. Entrepreneurship is big with people with ADHD because they struggle to stay in the boundaries and follow the rules. When they go into a corporate environment, they generally don't do very well. But because they're inventive, because they're creative, because they're energetic and they're spontaneous and they want to do bigger, be bigger and have all these ideas, they tend to go into their own businesses. And one of the biggest entrepreneurs that I know of, Richard Branson, has been diagnosed. And there are others who have shown um, traits of ADHD but were never formally diagnosed, so I don't feel like it's really fair to use their names or talk about them, but I'm sure there's a lot more out there, a lot of big names out there who have have been diagnosed and either haven't shared it or um, just never, they went undiagnosed. Okay, I hope that was helpful for parents who are wondering about if their child might have ADHD or what they need to look out for. Um, if you want to see any of the 60 parenting classes on positive discipline, development and health, education, or modern parenting, visit the website at yourvillageonline.com. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered, send an email to podcast at yourvillageonline.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.